This is Chapter 75 of the WCBS Author Talks Podcast. I'm Lisa Chernkovich. This week, we chat with Sophie Hanna, the author who's breathing new life into Agatha Christie's famous Belgian detective. And we follow true love around the world with the latest romance novel from Christine Bray. If you're a fan of murder mysteries, there's a uh, 100% chance you've read one or two or 20 Agatha Christie novels. Did you know she wrote 66 detective novels, 14 short story collections, a handful of romance novels, and what is the world's longest running play before her death in 1976 at the age of 85? That is a lot of writing. Her fictional detectives are beloved the world over, and The Man from Belgium is back in The Mystery of Three Quarters. I spoke with author Sophie Hanna about the daunting task of picking up the Christie mantle and how to properly hold a grudge. First things first, what is the proper way to pronounce his name? Uh, the proper way is Hercule Poirot. In England, most people call him Hercule. I mean, technically it's Hercule, but yeah, Hercule Poirot is what most people call him. This is the third Poirot book that you've written. Has it become yeah. easier to step into Agatha Christie's footsteps? No, I mean, it, it, I, I wouldn't say so, no. I mean, writing a book is never easy. Writing any book is not easy. Um and, you know, each book and each plot idea and each situation has its challenges. So um, it never really gets easier. In fact, in some ways, in some ways it's, it gets harder because you become more kind of conscious of what you're doing and you become more conscious of all the ways in which things could potentially go wrong. You know, I think when I first started writing and also when I first started writing Poirot novels, you know, you sort of leap in and think I hope this works once you've done it for a while and you're more sort of experienced in the uh, and more sort of conscious of the craft involved then it can actually in a funny sort of way make it a little bit harder. (laughs) Those who are familiar with Poirot and his his methods know that he's very particular and he also has this habit of coming to conclusions that nobody else sees. How how did you plot out the mystery at the center of his books and this book in particular? Well, actually, that that's the side of Poirot. I mean, I think that's why I write crime fiction in the first place, because in in real life, I often feel that I can, you know, I have reached conclusions. And when I try and say to other people, come on, can't you see this is obvious from that? And they'll go, no, no, I can't see that. <laughs> you know, that and that's an experience that I have quite often in real life. Um, so... Yeah, so so it, each of my Poirot novels has begun in a different has begun in a different way. So the first two, the Monogram Murders and Closed Casket, both of them began with an idea for the solution to a mystery. So in each case, I thought, wouldn't it be great if it turned out that what was really going on was whatever, you know? Um, in the case of Closed Casket, it was a motive for murder. I thought of. What I, what I thought was just the most brilliant motive for murder. It was so incredibly simple, and I was pretty sure it had never been done before, and I was pretty sure that no one could guess it. So that was like the holy grail of motives for murder. So that was where that one started. And with the um, monogram murders, I thought of an ending where I thought of what what could actually have happened, but what it looked like had happened. So I thought of a way it could look 
And everyone would think X, but actually it would turn out that the solution was Y, which was also consistent with the way it looked, but no one would think of it. So in both cases, uh, the first idea for those two books was basically a clever ending, or what I thought was a clever ending. With Mystery of Three Quarters, it started slightly differently. I started with the opening mystery. And at the point when I had that first idea, I didn't know what the solution would be. Just as with Monogram, Murders and Closed Casket, I started with these amazing endings, but I had no idea what the beginning mystery would be to get to these endings. So um, in a way, writing The Mystery of Three Quarters has been really fascinating for me because it was the first of my Poirots that I approached from, you know, as it were, in the correct chronological plot order. And I just started with this idea that, Four people have received letters purportedly from Poirot accusing them all of the, of the same murder, of the murder of a man called Barnabas Pandy. And Poirot, when confronted by these angry people, all insisting they haven't murdered Barnabas Pan- Pandy, Poirot is uh, quite baffled because he hasn't sent anyone any such letter. So he then realises someone is sending these letters in his name. Um, and even more puzzlingly, he has never heard of a Barnabas Pandy and he doesn't know if he's dead or alive or if he's real and if he's dead, was he murdered? So uh, that was my sort of initial idea and then I had to sort of work forwards to think of the rest of the story. And, And actually with all three Poirot novels, there has to be something about the initial idea that makes me think, yes, this is a case for Poirot because I also write... I write another series. Uh, I have a detective, a contemporary detective character called Simon Waterhouse. Um, and I also write standalone. So, you know, it's not guaranteed that if I have an idea, it will feel like it must be Poirot. So the three Poirot novels I've written all started from ideas where I just thought, yes, this has to be a Poirot book. So if you have an idea that's not perfect, it's not necessarily it gets rejected. It might pop up in something else that you're writing. Oh, absolutely. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, I've got ideas. So at the moment, I've got another Poirot novel that I'm currently under contract to write. So in 2020, my fourth Poirot novel will come out. And um, I have loads of ideas at the moment that I love that I know are not Poirot novels. So I'm not considering those ideas. And, and equally, I've got two ideas, which I think I'm almost definitely going to use one of in the next Poirot novel because they do feel as though they have to be Poirot. So, yeah, it's just a kind of weird, instinctive thing. Agatha Christie herself wrote about 40, I think I did a rough count, Poirot novels. Did you go back reread them all? I did. Um, so I've actually sort of been rereading them all ever since I read them the first time when I was a teenager. Every 10 years or so, I reread them anyway. But when I was asked to write a Poirot novel, then I thought, right, I definitely need to reread them now because I'll reread them from such a different perspective, thinking that I have to write one. Uh, So yeah, that was my homework uh, when I knew I was going to be doing this. I I immediately set about reading them all again. And for people who don't know the story, why don't you tell us how you were picked to bring Poirot back to life? It was a complete coincidence. My agent was having a meeting at HarperCollins in London. And HarperCollins have always published Agatha Christie. And so my agent knew this. 
And during this meeting, I don't know how it came up, but he, he just happened to remember that I was a huge Agatha Christie fan. So he said to the editor that he was having a meeting with, and the meeting was nothing to do with me or Agatha or anyone. Uh, it was just, you know, some other book that he was doing with HarperCollins. But he remembered this and he said to this editor, you know what you ought to do? You ought to ask my author, Sophie Hannah, to write a new you know, a Christie continuation novel, either Poirot or Miss Marple. And the editor said, oh, you know, we'd love it if somebody could do a Christie continuation novel, but the family are dead against it, so we don't think it can ever happen. Um, and then just by sheer coincidence, that same editor the following day had a meeting with the Christie family because they met every so often to discuss, you know, the Agatha backlist publishing. And at that meeting, Matthew Pritchard, who is Agatha's grandson, and who at the time was the chairman of Agatha Christie Limited, at that meeting, Matthew said to HarperCollins, this is going to surprise you, but we, the family, have decided that we might, after all, want to do uh, some kind of continuation novel for Agatha. Uh, at which point the editor said, this is a huge coincidence. I had an agent in my office the other day who thinks he might have the perfect author. So then a meeting was arranged and we just got on very well. We, you know, we discussed it all very tentatively, but, you know, we liked each other. We all got quite excited by the idea. And so we eventually decided to go ahead. You couldn't have written that any better yourself. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's a kind of coincidence of timing that if you put it in a novel, everyone would say it was implausible. But, you know, <laughs> these things do happen in real life. So do you have a favorite Agatha Christie book? It, it changes. I mean, I have a, a sort of regular, a regular sort of top tier of Agatha Christie books and the actual favorite changes. Um, at the moment, I think it might be Murder on the Orient Express because I reread that after seeing the new Kenneth Branagh movie. Um, and I just reminded myself of uh, what an absolutely amazing book it is. It really is extraordinary, and the detail is just so precise, and it's so well done. So I think at the moment I would say it's Murder on the Orient Express, but my, you know, if it isn't Murder on the Orient Express, then it's The Hollow. Uh, the Hollow is a less well-known Agatha Christie novel, and it's a Poirot novel as well, um, and it's just a brilliant novel as well as a brilliant mystery. The characters, you know, it's, it's this sort of strange family and the relationships and the characters are so well done. Uh, I think it's, you know, an example of Agatha writing absolutely at the top of her powers, uh, but it's also a brilliant mystery. I've also read that you're kind of addicted to self-help books. Totally addicted to self-help books. And I have to hide them because, you know, <laughs> if I'm if I'm having, you know, my aunt and uncle round for dinner and I've got a book on the shelf called How to Deal with Having a Hideous Toxic Aunt and Uncle <laughs> and that could be a problem diplomatically. Uh, but yeah, I've been into self-help books for a long time and I'm actually about to publish my own first self-help book which is coming out in America on January the 1st. So just in time for the new year and it's called How to Hold a Grudge. And the <laughs> I love it. The subtitle, the subtitle is from resentment to contentment, the power of grudges to transform your life. Uh, and what it's basically arguing is that a lot of the self-help literature and a lot of the self-help industry, if you could put into practice what it advocates, then 
it would work flawlessly. But it often doesn't take into account the fact that people in real life regularly can and do annoy us, you know. And so you might think, you know, I've read a lot of self-help books that say, you know, don't give other people the power to affect how you feel. If someone comes up to you and says, you're a revolting old bat and hits you over the head with a hammer, you know, you can choose to think that's their problem and I'm not going to let it upset me. And now that's absolutely sound advice in theory, but in practice, if someone comes up to us and says something vicious and horrible, we are going to be upset. That, you know, there's just no way around that for most ordinary people who aren't sort of mega enlightened gurus. So my book is arguing that the real effective way to being happier and thinking more positively is accepting that we might occasionally be very angry with people or very upset with people. Uh, and my book basically advocates holding grudges in the right way and if you hold grudges in the right way then that will actually enable you to be a more forgiving and less angry person uh, and then I, I talk readers through the process of how exactly to hold a grudge in a healthy way because if you're holding a grudge and it's, it's causing you to feel angry and eaten up with bitterness then that's not a processed grudge that's a grudge that's harming you as well um, so yeah so that's going to be my my first foray into the self-help genre. I think a few of the characters in Mystery of Three Quarters could have used your book. Yeah, <laughs> well, exactly. And I mean, fiction is... I mean, part of the reason I wanted to write a book about grudges is that initially I wanted to read a book about grudges. And so I looked for one and I was absolutely astonished to discover that, for, you know, such a universal human experience, we, we all have held a grudge or tried not to hold one or held lots or, you know, it, it, it's as universal a part of human experience as falling in love or, you know, having a child or whatever. Um, and there was not one single book specifically on the subject of grudges. There was no book about, you know, why we hold them, why some people might hold them more often than others. Um, what you know? What is a grudge? How to deal? With, you know, there's just nothing. So I thought I've got to write a book about grudges, uh, and then I I realised that actually my grudges make me happier, saner, a better able to deal with life. They make me feel protected from some people that I need to be protected from, and I thought I'm going to write a self help book advocating the holding of grudges. <laughs> so, so I have. I love it. And I think we're going to have you back in January to come and talk to us a little bit more about that book. Oh, yeah, I'd love to. That would be brilliant. So the book we have been talking about, in addition to Holding Grudges, is Mystery of Three Quarters, which is a new Poirot novel. Author of Sophie Hanna, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Eight Goodbyes is a romance novel about great love, but also terrible, heart-wrenching loss the kind that will take your breath away when you encounter it on the page. I recently spoke with author Christine Bray about the real-life events that inspired this book. This is a story about a love that really spans the globe. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about Eight Goodbyes? Eight Goodbyes is a, uh, a romance about two people who meet, and at the time they meet, it's kind of bad timing, so they have different priorities. And so they decide to meet around the world, and as they meet in different places around the world, they form a friendship, and obviously they fall in love. What inspired you to write this kind of love story? 
Well, I'm, it was coming out of um, the fourth book that I had published that was a little bit um, more angsty and um, it was a little bit more serious. And I thought, you know, I'd love to write a book that would chronicle kind of my travels. Um, in my job, current job, I travel a lot. And I wanted to take the reader on kind of a, a journey with me to see the places that I've seen, the cultures that I've experienced. And then I just used romance as the backdrop for the story. I know also that the terror attacks in Paris influenced you a little bit, right? Yes, it did. Um, I I work there a lot, so I've been I've been I've been traveling back and forth to Paris for a few years now, and you know I've built friendships and relationships in that um, part of the world. And when that happened, a lot of my friends and a lot of my acquaintances, as well as colleagues, were affected by that. So, you know, I wanted kind of to write a book to honor the people that were affected by that event. And it's really a book, I think, about survivors and that. You know, it's really a fact of life that the real victims of a tragedy sometimes are the ones that are left behind and have to live in the aftermath. Right, right. You know, everyone experiences loss in their lives. And it's 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 really the people that are left behind. It's, it's the people that are, you know, that are always, you know, beset with grief um, and regret that really um, have to go through so much in life when they lose a loved one. And you mentioned you travel a lot for work. So being an author is kind of your side job right now? Is it something you do for fun? Yeah, it's like a side hustle. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I work full time. I have a a very hectic career. So is there some of you in your main character, Tessa? Always. Um, All my books are about different stages in my life. Um, This book, Tessa, as annoying and irritating as she is, um, she has a lot of me. Yes. Is she living your dream of being a full-time author? (laughs) Yes, she is. She doesn't have to work. (laughs) (laughs) And she gets to stay in a a lot of really nice hotel rooms. Yes, yes. We get to travel to a lot of different places in this book. You mentioned you travel a lot. Do you have a favorite place that you visited? Um, You know what? I think it's it's really Paris. I write about um, two favorite places, really. Paris, where, you know, that has welcomed me as a second home for years. And then I also have a few chapters on the Philippines, which is where I'm from. So two places, one with family and the other with just wonderful friends. And did I read somewhere that uh, the cover photo for your book actually features your stamped passport? Yes, it does. It does. I took a page out of my passport. You've definitely been to a lot of different places then, just by judging the book by its cover. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I've been fortunate. You know, I think it's a blessing to be able to experience different cultures as part of your day-to-day. And so I really feel very lucky to be able to do that. Do you write while you travel on the airplane, or do you have a different sort of routine for when you want to sit down and, and, and write your book? No, actually, you know what? I write everywhere I get the chance. So, yes, a lot on airplanes, in hotels, um, you know, in the middle of uh, lounges. Um, sometimes in <laughs> as I wake up in the middle of night in the bathroom, um, I take every opportunity to write because it's not a full-time thing for me. And so when you get your ideas and you can get your storylines and your characters start speaking to you in their heads, you know, you just have to go with it. Do you jot, are you a pen and paper person or is it like jotting notes on a cell phone? No way. I'm pen and paper. Oh, I'm glad to hear that. It's old school. Yes. Yes. So what do you want readers to take away from this book? 
I think what I want readers to take away from this group, uh, this book is really um, that, you know, they're not alone, that emotions and feelings are, are universal, no matter where you are in the world. Um, no matter who you are and the culture that you have, I think that feelings are feelings, love is love, um, it's universal. And also a little bit that life is too short. That's what I kind of took away from it. Yeah, I mean, that's probably the main thing. I mean, you know, just aside the fact that they're not alone, life, it's just really life is short. So you have to enjoy the here and now and just close your eyes. Jump. Words to live by. <laughs> Well, we've been talking to Christine Bray. The book is Eight Goodbyes. Thank you so much for joining us, uh, squeezing us in in your busy travel schedule. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for having me. It's such an honor to be on your show. Thank you. Thank you. And that's where we'll close the book on this chapter. Remember, you can always reach us on Twitter and Instagram at WCBS880Books. Next week, a thriller debut that touches on the fierce protectiveness and jealousies of sisterhood. Until then, happy reading.